This is The Every Lawyer, presented by the Canadian Bar Association. Welcome to The Every Lawyer, a Canadian Bar Association podcast. I'm your host, Marlise Silver-Sweeney. We are still recording in quarantine, so please excuse any sound or technical issues. We are doing our very best, and we hope that you are staying safe and healthy under these trying conditions. Canadian spouses have been quarantining since mid-March, and if we're learning from China, then our divorce rates are about to spike. Bloomberg reports China's divorce filings skyrocketed since the country eased its lockdown. We're starting to ease restrictions here too in Canada, but to complicate matters, our Divorce Act is set to have sweeping changes when Bill C-78 comes into effect. The implementation date of these changes were on July 1st, but they've recently been put on hold because of the COVID-19 situation. The objectives of the changes are simple. Promote the best interests of the child, focus on family violence prevention, reduce poverty, and increase access to justice. But they're really going to change how family law is practiced in Canada, and that's what we're going to talk about today with our guests. Melanie Del Rizzo has a broad legal practice, which includes family law in St. John's, Newfoundland. She was honored with the Queen's Council designation last year. She's a certified mediator and was past chair of the National Family Law Section of the CBA. Erin Brooke is a formal federal prosecutor who specializes now in family law out of Nanaimo, British Columbia. She's currently the table executive member of the family law section of the CBA's national organization. Thank you both so much for speaking with me today. There is a lot for me and for our listeners to learn about how the practice of family law is changing across the country. I'm going to focus on big picture changes that would be pertinent to any lawyer in the country, no matter what they practice, not just family lawyers. But for people who want to learn all the particulars of the changes to the legislation, please check out our webinar on the issue. And you can find that on cba.org slash Divorce Act. Thank you both so much for being here with me today. Thank you for having us. There's a lot of changes that we have to talk about, but the first one I wanted to ask you about was the fact that there's some major terminology changes coming our way um, with the, the Divorce Act. And I understand that the terms custody and access are both out. What are they being replaced with and why? Melanie, why don't we go to you first and then Aaron will get you to comment on anything else. So the terminology that we had for custody and access prior to this really started in a more proprietary idea about children in my view. So, you know, who has them, the custody of the children seemed like who owns the children. So now they've changed those sorts of terminology to be more along the lines of who exercises parenting time at what time, like who is actually parenting the children at any given time. So you're not sort of prioritizing one parent over another, just dividing up the parenting time. And similarly, the idea then for decision-making, which we all called sole custody or joint custody, and it was very confusing for people because people think of custody as being where the children spend the time, is now being changed to uh, decision-making ability. So who makes the decisions about the children and who makes what kinds of decisions about the children? So maybe one parent could be making a decision about 
um, you know, health for the child and another parent could be making the decisions about schooling or some other major decisions that are being made. So I think it more accurately reflects what's going on in Canadian society and what's happening in Canadian families uh, when parents separate. And it really starts people off instead of fighting about the children deciding what parenting schedule and how we divide the children's time rather than who gets custody and then who is the access parent, which is uh, really not our focus. Oh, interesting. Okay. And Erin, do you have anything, I, Melanie, give us a good rundown, but do you have anything to add about how you expect that terminology to play out now in practice? Well, in British Columbia, we've had language similar to what the Divorce Act is bringing in regarding parenting arrangements. So we've had the privilege of working with this less possessive style of language for some time. And what I've noticed in practice, at least with my files in any event, is that the families really are now looking at what is the actual practical realities of our home. We're not talking about um, sort of this ownership of a child or some concept that one parent has that right to own the children and provide permissive access to the other parent, but rather we're talking about what sort of a schedule works for the children, works for that family, and when we talk about decision-making responsibilities, we're also then looking at which parent has the capacity, the ability, and the practical ability to actually make those decisions. Are they away for work? Are they home? Are they the ones that have that information? So we're actually seeing it be a more useful tool in structuring child-focused parenting arrangements rather than parents having sort of this competitive battle about who is the actual parent and has the right to have custody over them. It certainly sounds a lot more positive, doesn't it? It does. I found that it's um, just in general, it has less combative style of language to it right off the get-go. Yeah. Right. And a lot of the provincial legislation that we have, or the provincial, I should say, the courts deal with the the terminology changes differently. Certainly in our courts as well, we have been using this kind of language for a number of years, even though it really isn't reflected in either of our legislations. Okay, so this is really bringing uh, federally and federal legislation up to speed of what we're seeing in many provinces. So something that you both mentioned uh, in your answer about the terminology changes was focusing on the child and what's in the best interests of the child. And I understand that another major change coming to the Divorce Act is this focus and is enhancing um, our look at what is most important for the children. This includes giving criteria to parents about what the court would actually be considering in this analysis, which seems like a pretty important uh, thing. What do we need to understand here? What does this criteria look like? Erin, why don't we start with you on this one? Right. So under the Divorce Act, we're looking at the court must be giving primary consideration to the child's physical, emotional, and psychological safety, security, and well-being. So what that does is it really breaks out factors for the court to consider. And they've also really got to look at um, the family violence considerations that impact children. They've broadened this perspective to look at really how can we make sure that orders that we're making about children are actually focused on what the children need and what's in their best interest rather than the wants or desires of the parents. Okay. And is is this, sorry, forgive my ignorance, but is this, are these new changes or is it just more of a focus than previously? I would characterize it as an expansion 
Okay. And a more detailed um, characteristic of what we should be looking at and what the court should be looking at when crafting orders that pertain to children. I can jump in on that as well and say the issue with respect to the criteria, they have a list of criteria under the best interest in the Divorce Act now. A lot of those criteria are similar to the criteria in the Children's Law Act or whatever the appropriate legislative name is in each province. Um, and they have been considered in a lot of provinces in Divorce Acts uh, Divorce Act applications as well as as applications where the parents were not married. But this is a very exhaustive list. It really uh, codifies the focus as being only the best interests of the children. And it actually states that the overarching principle is only the children's best interest, which uh, again takes the focus away from a rights-based approach, a mother's rights-based approach, or a father's rights-based approach, and really focuses on the rights of the child to be in the best parenting arrangement for that particular child, rather than discussing what parents what rights parents have over the children's time. Okay. And can you give me, you both mentioned this addition of criteria. I know it sounds like it's a long list. Can you give me an example or two of some of the criteria that the Divorce Act now sets out? I can summarize a few and Erin can, I'm sure, do a few as well. So, you know, you need to consider the child's needs, the child's age, the stage of development of the child, the need of the child uh, having a stable home life. Um, again, the strength of the relationships that the child has with family members in discussing this, the spouse's willingness to foster the development of the child is another one. They also consider Indigenous heritage as, as a factor in this list, as being able to uh, consider that and foster that, and that, I think that's very important. Um, they look at civil and criminal proceedings that are involved as well with the parents and consider family violence, as Aaron mentioned, as and then they also include a very expansive definition of family violence that uh, includes coercive control, financial control, and other things that uh, often are not considered. And so it's not just physical violence, it's emotional abuse, and other things. They have a very expansive definition. So it is a, a big sea change, even though you know, a lot of the courts have been considering some of these. I think it's really focusing on the very important matters that uh, will factor into where a child should be spending their time. Right. And it probably gives families a little bit more indication, too, of, you know, it's a little bit broad best interest of the child, but it sounds like the criteria you just set out for me gives people something at least to focus on. Erin, I was actually going to ask you to expand a little bit more about an important theme in the changes, which is an uh, a, more of a focus on family violence and the prevention of family violence. Um, I understand from a webinar that you both were a part of um, that between 2007 to 2011, a woman's risk of being killed by a former spouse was six times more than the spouse that she's currently living with. Um, how do the updates reflect this stark reality? What What is the Divorce Act doing to mitigate um, family violence? Well, one of the primary things they're doing is they're actually turning their mind to family violence as a consideration, not only just in making orders, but also with respect to the best interests of the children. And they've, like Melanie had suggested, have expanded that definition of family violence to mean any conduct, whether or not that conduct constitutes a criminal offense, that's done by a family member against a family member that is violent, threatening, that is a pattern of coercive and controlling behavior, or that causes a family member to fear for their safety or the safety of another person, especially in the case of children. 
um, or if there's been any exposure to that violence. So it really, it expands that definition to allow for the courts to take protective measures and to actually consider all of the elements that go into violence rather than just, is there a criminal charge that's resulted? Has it resulted in, um, you know, the level of criminality that we would consider family violence? It goes beyond that and it, it encompasses a scope of behaviors that actually will seek to protect people from not just physical abuse, but also it, it includes things like forced confinement, um, using force if you're necessary to protect each other. It encompasses sexual abuse, um, threats to kill or cause bodily harm, harassment, including stalking, which is something that we often see in family files, the following behaviors, or, or the failure to provide someone with the necessities of life. So it's actually quite an expanded definition. Um, like Melanie said, it includes financial abuse, so the controlling over money, which is something we can see in family files where there's a power imbalance with respect to um, income disparities. And again, it's also expanding to include threats to kill or harm animals or damage property, which I think is an expansion on the concept of historically what family violence includes. And again, those are things that we can sometimes see the threats to do those things in family files, like if I can't have it, I'll burn it down, for example. So I think with this, it really, it's a nod to what family violence actually looks like in reality, not necessarily a limited scope of what could be proven in a criminal court. Right. And as practitioners in this space, I mean, you both have drawn on examples already. You know, you must experience all um, types of this violence firsthand through your clients. Is it surprising that it took to until, you know, 2020 to actually expand the, this definition of family violence? Like as you both you know, spell it out for me, I, I'm thinking in my own mind, well, th yeah, that seems pretty practical. Well, let me tell you that in when I first started practicing law here in Newfoundland, the violence against a spouse wasn't necessarily considered to be violence against the child, even if the child had witnessed it. And so we've seen, even in the last you know, 25 years since I've been practicing, seen a real sea change in this. And it's not something that happened overnight, it's slow progress. And I mean, that changed fairly early on in my practice, but I remember being quite appalled by that particular approach to family violence. And I think we've come so far. This really does, again, put into the legislation what a lot of the courts have been doing all along, but not all. So it really gives great information and advice to people. And as part of this, the federal government and the federal Department of Justice has been providing and will be providing a lot of, um, of information and education to everyone who's interested, parties and lawyers and like public legal information and uh, information for lawyers to be able to identify family violence in their files and give them steps on how to deal with it. So, you know, there's a lot of people who dabble in family law and they may not be able to necessarily identify a situation where a client is experiencing this kind of family violence. So all of this is, again, along a continuum that I've seen over the course of my career. And it really is heartening for me to see the changes that have come along. But one of the things I do want to say, like the federal government is providing, I believe, is they're talking about a screening tool, for instance, which is something that's been uh, available to people, but it's a difficult thing to have available to everybody without training because you don't want to provide a tool and then somebody misuses it and, and misses a case and something happens, you know. So it's there's liability issues for a lot of these tools, but they're going to be providing something to assist lawyers in being able to identify it. So what I like about the legislation is, yes, they've changed and they've 
really given this expansive definition for family violence, but also the government is also assisting in helping educate people in recognizing it and in how to deal with it going forward. It's a very, very difficult issue, and we've seen how it can be devastating if it's not caught and dealt with early on. And one thing I find quite progressive about the definition of a family member that can be considered under an analysis of family violence is that it not only includes the spouse and the children, but it includes new partners of the spouses, as well as anyone who is participating in the activities of the household. So if there is um, a family member that's living in the home that's also being a subject to the violence, they're also being able to be considered under this expanded definition of family member. So that's something that I found quite progressive. And I think just the focus on this, and yes, the government's stepping in to help with um, family violence screening, because that is an obligation on a lot of family lawyers in their respective provinces to screen for family violence, that we have those tools to help us identify these things going on on our files before our clients are in jeopardy or before it's gone too far that there's an actual physical safety risk. Right. And it's, you're right. It is such a progressive way to look at the family structure and what a modern family unit might look like. And so that's interesting that, you know, in 2020, we are updating our laws to, to reflect the reali- reality that many Canadian families face. I wanted to talk to you both now, changing gears a little bit, but I understand that there's um, more alternative dispute resolution focus or provisions, and you'll you'll have to clarify what this looks like in the Act. But Erin, can you give me a bit of a rundown about how the the changes are um, focusing more on alternative dispute resolution? So I think that when you talk to anyone who practices family law, they will tell you that the best solutions are those that the parties have helped craft for themselves. And I think one of the options that we get with alternative dispute resolution really is the opportunity for the parties to be actively engaged in creating a solution that works for their families. And no two families are exactly the same. So having legislation that encourages us to utilize modes of alternative dispute resolution, such as mediation or arbitration or any of the other um, options for families to sit down together rather than have an adjudicator such as a judge unilaterally make a decision for them after a rather clinical process of introduction of evidence through counsel in a court process. It really gives them a lot more opportunity to have a say in what's happening in their family and to work towards a resolution that globally they're going to be more happy with at the end of the day than if someone who doesn't know their family as well as they do makes that decision for them. So I think the fact that our legislation is encouraging and in fact strongly suggesting that parties try these methods prior to going through an adjudicative process in the court is really focusing again on that, be a part of your creation of your own solution to the to the issues before your family. Okay. And Melanie, how do you think this will play out in practice? So as a practitioner, does this place more obligations on you? Do you think it's a, a useful tool? Well, I think a lot of family practitioners are doing this anyway, and I would hope that they are. But one of the things that the Divorce Act does is it creates an actual obligation on legal advisors, is what it says in the Act, to say that you have discussed all available alternative dispute resolution processes with your client 
and that you you know have done that prior to actually starting your the court process so with that obligation i hope that people give that the attention that it deserves and it's not just a checkbox on a form because really there are a lot of different things that are available in each province a lot of it some of it is free uh, some of it is fairly easily uh, accessible certainly with respect to trying to decide parenting and child support issues. There are programs through the courts that people can avail of. And then of course the private mediations and those sorts of things. So a lot of this is is extremely important that all practitioners of, of family law really address with their clients to see what can be done. And even if some things can be resolved and some things have to be litigated, like make sure that we do that. And I would like to say that one of the silver linings of the pandemic is that with no access to the courts for a period of time, I think we've all been forced uh, into alternative dispute resolution. And hopefully some of the good practices that we're using now to try to resolve files because we don't have another option will carry on to the future because people can now see oh, this really works and it works best for these families. Right. And that's a timely change, actually, because just to clarify with both of you, these changes were meant to be enacted July 1st. But now because of the COVID-19 pandemic, we actually don't know. They're not going to be incorporated July 1st. And we're not sure when they're going to be come into effect. Is that clear? That's correct. And I don't mean to interrupt you, Erin, but the um, the implementation date is being it will be announced the new implementation date will be announced shortly but as of the recording of this podcast it has not been and i think a lot of the issues are there have to be a lot of changes made to forms and processes in the courts across the country um there was a language uh like a um, the language rights that are included in the new divorce act that you can have trials in French or English, and then the forms have to be available in French and English, so their things have to be translated. So they're working through the federal and territorial and provincial committees to figure out what the timelines are for that going forward. One more major change that I wanted to discuss with both of you, and that was the framework for relocation that's being introduced. Uh, This must be just a huge issue in your practices, for your clients. What does this new framework look like and what do lawyers need to understand about it? Erin, why don't we start with you on this one? I think first it's really important to understand what is relocation. So a lot of people think that that's moving within a community, but that's not what the scope is being considered here. Relocation really does mean a change in the place of the residence of a child or a person who has parenting time or decision-making responsibility that is likely to have a significant impact on the child's relationship with people who they have parenting time with or significant people in their lives and a person who has an order for contact. So really, this is a move that's going to more than just change their address in a city. It's really about changing where they live, changing where they might go to school, or having one of their parents who's actively engaged in parenting time moving from that jurisdiction. So when we're looking at this, really the the scheme is going to end up being that we have to give notice, which is a new format. There's going to be forms that are required to be completed, notice that's required to be given to the other parent, And so any person who's got parenting time or decision-making responsibilities for a child or who has contact and whether they're intending to move with or without the child has to fill out this form and give their 60 days notice and 
provide a proposal for what the parenting might look like after they move. Okay. And just to clarify in my mind, this gives a bit more structure to relocation for the both parties? I think what it does is it creates a framework that didn't exist before to say, you know, if you are planning a kind of a move like this, there requires some conversation and discussion. Again, it goes back to what's in the best interest of children. We need to focus on what's impacting them. And I think this is sort of a codification of behaviors of parents in order to, again, focus on to the interests of the children. Okay. And Melanie, in your years of practice, how do you think that this new tool, this new framework, how do you think it will work with your with the parties, with the clients that you represent? Well, I think as a whole, relocation is always the most difficult um, issue, parenting issue that arises. As you could imagine, there's always a level of cooperation and, and compromise that comes up when you're trying to negotiate a settlement or even when the court uh, imposes uh, a decision on parties, but there's no compromise when it comes to relocation. You either have, uh, you know, you can't say, well, I want to move to British Columbia. I want to stay in Newfoundland. Okay, well, we'll move to Winnipeg. You know, like that's not really a possibility. So, you know, it's extremely important for judges to be able to, and for parties to have some degree of predictability, because as it stands right now, the uh, the only test is, oh, is this in the child's best interest? And that's very broad. So this gives a little bit of a framework, a little bit more predictability for people. So the idea is if, if a child is living the vast majority of time with one parent, then there's a presumption that that parent should be able to move with the child. Now that can be, if it's not in the child's best interest, it still can be litigated and, and uh, rebutted, but it really gives just a little bit more ability to the parties to uh, predict an outcome, which then predicting an outcome is really the only way to settle some of these cases because they're so difficult. So again, um, the this is only divorce act and a lot of these notice provisions and those kinds of things really only apply if there's an order under the divorce act. So you, not everybody right now can avail of this. Uh, I know that the governments in various provinces are trying to implement legislation so that unmarried parents can as well have similar sorts of guidelines, which is also important, but uh, they've only been passed in Nova Scotia and BC right now, and those are both somewhat different than what the Divorce Act says. So there's a lot, gonna be a lot of growing pains with this legislation, but uh, we're very happy to see it come out because it does at least give some sort of a framework because it really was a very, very difficult area of law before this. Okay, well, thank you. And we could talk about this all day because it's such a fascinating area of law. There's some huge sweeping changes that are coming down the pipeline, but I don't want to take up too much more of your time. But I was just interested in moving from the you know the theoretical and the legal analysis to your own personal views about these changes and what they're going to look like professionally for you and uh, how you think they'll contribute to um, you know the rule of law within Canada. So. Melanie, what do you think? You know, you've you've been in the field for a while now. Are you are you happy with these changes? Do you wish to see others? Well, this was the only uh, this is the biggest change we've seen since the implementation of the previous Divorce Act in 1986. This is a huge sea change for everybody. Again, it has been picked away at over time with with uh, court decisions and whatnot. But it really it's a very progressive change. One of the things I want to say is that it also clears up a lot of 
problems that were in the previous act. One of the major ones was a provision that said, was called the maximum contact principle. And it said more or less that children should spend as much time as possible with each parent. And then it says, as is in their best interest is what it used to say, but people would uh, ignore that. And a lot of courts ignored that to say that there was some sort of presumption that having equal time with both parents is in the child's best interest, which uh, has been very clearly changed in these uh, in these amendments. So that kind of a change, for instance, is a huge one for me. It really gets rid of a lot of misconceptions about parenting. It fixes this rights-based approach that people have been using um, to ignore a lot of uh, the children's rights as opposed to the parents' rights. And you know, to me, I think it's I've seen. Uh, I've seen it make a change in the attitudes of people, even without it being in force as of right now. I can see that uh, that people are really starting to understand why these changes are coming into effect. And a lot of lawyers are being more sensitive to a lot of the issues that are raised here. And one of the other things that I wanted to mention as well is the um, the voice of the child section in the best interest of the child, making sure that the children's voice is heard when it's appropriate to do so, certainly giving, uh, having them heard based on what their age and developmental level, you know, what weight is given to their opinion. So I think some of these things I've seen uh, courts in my province, and I know in other provinces they do a lot more, they've really started to um, consider things like the voice of the child in making decisions more. So I think it really has, it's going to benefit Canadian families going forward. Now, of course, there's all sorts of changes that I could suggest or different things that I'd like to see. But as it stands, um, you know, I support the legislation strongly and I'm, I'm so happy to see it. Okay, well, thanks for your views. And that's really interesting, too, about authority, ownership, um, prominence to what children want and their voices being heard. Erin, how about you? What are your thoughts on the, the sweeping changes? Overall, I think the legislation has a real focus on modernizing and catching up with what we're actually doing in practice. So I think for me, that's a very positive change. I also think that a lot of these amendments are encouraging not just dispute resolution, but they're also helping to facilitate access to justice and helping to streamline some of our processes. So when we look at the uh, requirement for lawyers to canvas dispute resolution processes with their clients, as well as that positive obligation to share um, family justice services and community opportunities for them to one, educate themselves, and two, resolve their problems outside of court, we're really seeing an expansion on the opportunities for people to take hold of their family law disputes and resolve them. I think that this legislation also creates sort of, um, we didn't talk about it here, but it creates sort of a legislative authority for an administrative establishment of child support. It improves our child support recalculation scheme. It streamlines interjurisdictional processes. So there's a lot of ways that over and above just the changes in terminology, which is more modernizing, it's also helping to make the whole system run a little more smoothly and sort of catch up with all the changes that have happened in the 30 plus years since the last time the Divorce Act has been looked at legislatively. So it's catching up with what the courts are saying, with what we're doing in practice, and it's really trying to help service the users of this piece of legislation. Okay, well, great. I think that's a really nice summary to end on, too. So, Erin and Melanie, thank you both so much for speaking with us today and really breaking down uh, these broad topics uh, so that we can understand how they'll actually play out in practice. 
Thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much to both Melanie and Erin for breaking down the changes for us today. If you'd like more information on these changes, check out our webinar online. I'd love to hear your thoughts on these issues. Tweet to us at CBA underscore news, or you can reach me at my handle at SS. We are on Spotify, Apple Podcast, and Stitcher, wherever you listen to podcasts. Subscribe to receive notifications for new episodes and leave us a review if you like what you hear. We have a podcast in French called Je Riste Blanche. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned for the next episode. Mm-hmm.